luck had always been something that I could just count on. Once, a palm reader told me that this was because the gods found me amusing. So, when I was about to graduate university, I hadn't thought about employment. No worries, because sure enough, a buddy called. He said he got me a great job lined up in California. California, huh? Fantastic. So, while all the suckers were running around, sending out resumes, going for interviews, I spent my time at the bar talking big stuff about the new convertible I was going to get from California. Cherry red. But then, I remember this day. I remember it because it was so odd. My buddy called up and said, so the company's going bankrupt? So there's no job. No job. No job. Well, there are other ways to strike it rich, right? Lady Luck will provide. Wrong. I couldn't get it together. I was doing these crappy temp jobs a monkey could do better than me. One of my jobs was counting paper in a box, but they kept on playing Tears from Heaven again and again and again and again and again and again. And when I gently requested that they please stop the trying to torture and kill me, they told me it would be better if maybe I didn't come in the next day. And I was glad, because it gave me the space to go where the action was. I loaded up my beat-up Honda Civic and drove west to the epicenter of the dot-com boom, the San Francisco Bay, the new economy. Come on, Lady Luck, come on. I got a room in a house with a bunch of guys, with all of us in a race to make a million dollars. We'd throw out ideas over the sound of clicking keypads. How about uh, internet pets? How about internet psychics? Internet carpet cleaning? Internet bowling? The buzz in the air was electric. 60 new millionaires made it every month in the Bay. Every night, some new dot-com would throw an amazing launch party celebrating the new geniuses. And even though no one seemed to have any idea what the companies did, the parties were amazing. <laughs> Dancers, chocolate waterfalls, levitating DJs, an open bar. I was at one of these parties on the outside, lusting in, and I thought, why does the universe hate me? When is my luck gonna kick in? Surely I deserve to be a dot-com millionaire? Then I met this guy, Bruce. He said, look, I've got the job for you, but understand, there are no stock options. The salary sucks, but you'd be helping kids and doing good for the community. Well, of course, that sounded horrible. But beggars can't be choosers, so I showed up at the job. Figured I'd bolt when I came up with my big idea. But I got to work with some of the kids, helped some of them off the street, helped others go back to school, worked to reunite families. No red convertibles, but every morning, there was a smile on my face. And then a little while turned into a long time. And after the dot-com crash, I woke up one day and realized that fortune teller was right. The gods must still be amused because I got extremely lucky. Today, from PRX and NPR, Snap Judgment proudly presents Lady Luck. She comes in all shapes and sizes, strikes when you least expect it, and sneaks out the back right when you need her most. Put your money, your hopes, your dreams on the table 
My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Okay, snappers, I know a few of you think you're hot stuff on the dance floor. Got your little one-step, two-step, your Michael Jackson impersonation. But our next guest, they've got moves for real. Two professional hip-hop dancers, David Bortnick and Ryan Kern, they take us down to the city where dreams are made, Los Angeles, where all that stands between them and the big break is just a little bit of luck. My name is David Bortnick, and I'm a professional hip-hop dancer. My name's Ryan Curran, and I am a professional hip-hop dancer. I am the professional hip-hop dancer. I was 18 when I moved to Los Angeles, and I moved down because I wanted to do dance as a career. And I would occasionally go up and join him and go take class at Millennium Dance Complex. And the dance studio was enormous. Huge. Justin Timberlake would go around there. Britney Spears was there a lot. Missy Elliott. Everyone you know, Janet Jackson, the Madonna, and all everywhere in between. So I just finished class, and this woman came and approached me and said, you know, my name's Dee Dee. I saw you in that class. I love your look. I think you're an awesome dancer. I have this daughter, Jay, who's an amazing vocalist, and we're looking for backup dancers. Would you be interested? And of course, I was like, well, yeah, I'm interested. And she, so she took me to her car, played the demo. So after I listened to the demo, I was like, wow, this girl can sing. This is gonna, this is the next Christina Aguilera right here. Called up Dave. I was like, this girl's no joke. Like, she is the business, professionally produced beats quality vocals this is the real deal hell yes we want to be a part of this we're in this was our big break drums jay's mom Didi, was jay's manager Didi was a quick talker she had a lot to say um she would be in there telling us oh that looks good or that looks bad or i hate it or whatever and she just seemed unforgiving and she was ready to do whatever it took to make her daughter a star We would show up like an hour early. Anything they gave us, we were just trying to dance it as hard as we possibly could. Rehearsal three times a day, doing photo shoots for their little promo stuff. Like, whatever they want, do it. You're, you're working for them. All right, guys, it's good. It's good. Let's take some time. One night we come to rehearsal, and she says, Randy Jackson just called me. He wants to have dinner at the Cheesecake Factory. Do you guys want to go? And Randy Jackson was very, very big at the time. A judge on American Idol, the major player down in Hollywood as far as producing goes. And we were both just like, great. Then we get in our car, we're like, oh my God, we're going to see Randy Jackson. Like, (laughs) (laughs) We all pull up to the restaurant right in downtown Hollywood. Dee Dee brings us up and introduces us one at a time. We all get to shake his hand. What's up, baby? What it is? What it is? Yeah, it was all pretty surreal. It was like, here he is. I just touched him 
and he's saying nice things, and we're super stoked. I mean, I instantly went to, ooh, what could I buy with $100,000? How much are we going to make on our first European tour? And that's what you always hear about in Hollywood is you got to be at the right place at the right time, meet the right person, and that's how it happens. And I was like, for me, I just showed up to a dance class, and bam, now I'm the next Christina Aguilera's backup dancer. Like, I'm going to be set for life. So Didi made it pretty upfront that we were not going to be paid until a record deal was signed and that every, we were investing in this project. For sure. We understand. We're helping build this and, and we'll get it in the, you know, on the back end. A month passed and then two months passed. We put all this time in now. It's been like six months. So it's starting to really hit me financially. I'm like barely getting by, literally like sleeping wherever I can on friends' floors. Then we start going, okay, well, if you want us to invest in it, we need some reassurance that if she gets a record deal tomorrow, you're not just going to ditch us. So we start talking about contracts. And instantly she's like, you, what, you don't trust me? We're, I thought we were friends. I thought we were becoming like a family. Families don't need contracts. And Ryan's instantly like... Yeah, but I'd still like a contract. I don't, I don't even, I can't even. Dee Dee storms out of the room and we're all like, what's going to happen next? And she comes back and says, okay. Okay, a record exec from Disney is going to come watch us and it's a really big deal. We have to be perfect. Okay, it's go time. Like, give it all you got. So we went and performed for the big record executive at Disney. Everybody tells me that it's so hard to make. They were really impressed. We did awesome. Everyone was perfect. And we killed it. Yes. We murdered it. Murdered it. And we finish, and the guy looks at all of us, and he's like, you know, we really like your sound. You're really an amazing singer, but you sound too much like Christina Aguilera, and we don't think we can sell you like this. So are you willing to work with us and, like, put a tweak on it so it's more original? And Jay just loses it. Just, like, temper tantrum, just screaming at him, storming out, slamming doors, yelling at her mom, like, how could you possibly let this happen? This is my art, this is my music. D comes back, Jay's mom, and, and says, nope, we're not going with them. We're better than them, like, we got other things, we're out of here. And we're like, what's the deal? Why the hell... Did you not take that deal? Like, we've put in six, seven months worth of time now, and, like, you keep telling us we get paid when you make it, and you're turning down the the making it contract. Like, uh, uh, Dave, grab your stuff. Let's get out of here. So we left, and we proceed to hit the worst traffic jam. Just brought up everything that has ever been wrong with the situation, and we're ranting in the car to each other. We're totally venting, just letting out everything that we need to say. So I'm telling Dave, they have to give us money or we just go. How much should we ask for? I don't know, a million dollars? <laughs> we should ask for something, though, because this has been crazy. Yes, yeah, this, is, this is... She's absolutely out of her mind. Dee Dee is a crazy... Dee Dee is a crazy, crazy woman. Then her self-obsessed daughter... Who does not know her left from her right. Earth to Jay, you sound like Christina Aguilera. Change it up. 
We already got a Christina Aguilera. Change, change it up. up. What's the one good thing we've gotten out of it is a dinner with Randy, Randy Jackson. Jackson. So, as we're just totally ranting and venting to each other, I look down at my phone and it's ringing and it's Didi. And I pick it up and she says, You should really watch who you pocket dial on your phone. I heard everything you just said. And she hung up. And then Dave looks at me. And his eyes are wide, and he says, apparently, you just pocket-dialed Dee Dee. And she heard everything. Like, it's over. So we go back to my place, and uh, we go to sleep, totally thinking we're done with it. And the next morning, I wake up to a phone call, and it's Dee Dee. And she's not angry, and I'm kind of confused. And she goes, David, I just want you to hear what I heard. And then she plays back this message. And because of the way the phone was positioned, all you can hear is Ryan. And that's it. And I have this flash like, oh, I could totally mend this right now. So I say, Didi, you heard that out of context. You didn't get to hear what I was saying. And it changes everything. And she's like, oh, what were you saying? And I lost it. Didi, I said that you, you are the problem. It's not the record executives. It's not the voice. You. You treat your daughter like a commodity. You have stolen hours and hours of my life. Time I will never get back. And you should be ashamed of yourself. (laughs) And then suddenly I heard another voice on the phone and it was Jay. And suddenly I hear Jay say, David, why are you yelling? What's going on? And I said, run. Run as far away from your mother as you possibly can. Run. Run. And I hang up the phone. (laughs) (laughs) And I walked higher that day. I walked prouder. And I applauded him. It was awesome. Big love to David Portnick and Ryan Curran for sharing their story with The Snap. And remember, all that glitters is not gold. Don't worry, David and Ryan, they've done just fine for themselves. They both dance professionally and are launching their own production company with contracts headquartered in Northern California. If you want to see them in action, check out our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Pat Masidi Miller, who, of course is also known as the next Christina Aguilera. When Snap Judgment continues, we're going to take things that don't belong to us. We're going to make a million dollars, and we're going to get a beaten. When Snap Judgment, the Lady Luck episode, continues.
Welcome back to Snap Judgment. Now, you know we're not going to do a Lady Luck episode without spending some time in Vegas. Up next, we've got a story about a guy I would love to meet. It's told to us by Michael Koenig. He wrote a book about the crazy things people will do for money, and one chapter of the book deals with one of the most legendary gamblers in history, Archie Karras. Michael tells us Archie's story. In the late 90s, I spent a lot of time in Las Vegas. I was writing a gambling column for a magazine, and I was spending a lot of time specifically at a place called Binion's Horseshoe, where they held the annual World Series of Poker. There was a big buzz going around the casino about a guy who supposedly had won every single one of Binion's $5,000 chips and put them in his rack. This had never been done before, and it sounded at first like one of these apocryphal Vegas myths. And I tracked down the story, and to my astonishment, the guy actually did exist. Archie Karras. The first time I met him was at Binion's Horseshoe, at the dice pit where he actually had his epic run. He was courtly and gentlemanly. He looked a little bit like John Gotti. Pompadour and pinky rings struck me as someone who was part hustler, part European aristocracy. Archie went on the greatest run that anybody could ever remember in Vegas casinos. So going back to the beginning of the story... He was, in fact, stone-cold broke. He was living out of his car. But in the surreal world of professional gambling, being broke doesn't necessarily mean that you're a failure or that you're out of the game. It just means you've got to find somebody to loan you some money. So uh, our man Archie found a friend to loan him $10,000, and that became the seed money for what would be known as the run. He decided to take a shot at the biggest game in the Mirage card room. So he took that 10000 and he promptly won 20000 in this game. He took that money, paid off his friend. This is when he started gambling on billiards with a famous casino executive. Over the course of a couple sessions, at $10,000 a game, he was able to get close to a million dollars. He had amassed now a really intimidating bankroll and went to Binion's Horseshoe and challenged all comers for some of the largest stakes anybody had ever seen for poker. Every turn of the card, somebody had a bet between eight and $16,000. Archie knew that for these kind of stakes, there were only a handful of players who would be willing to gamble that high. And those tended to be the best players in the world, guys who are in the Hall of Fame. Archie played these guys heads up and won another $2 million. So now he had three to four million dollars, and instead of doing the sensible thing, quitting, saving, planning, Archie went to the dice table. The horseshoe gave him his own private table with security guards around it, keeping the ruffians away from the felt, and he rolled the dice. 
In the first week that Archie started playing dice, he had winning sessions of 1.6 million, 900,000, 800,000, 1.3 million, and 4 million. At one point, he had every single one of Binion's chocolate-colored $5,000 chips. Luck be a lady tonight. Now, during this period, he also claims to have booked losing sessions of $2 million, $2.5 million, and $1.5 million. So we need to be clear, this was not some sort of weird, magical dice that never lost. But he went up a lot more than he went down. Exactly how much he won is very difficult to verify. What's clear is that at a certain point, a guy who came to Vegas with $50 in his pocket had $17 million in his account. Archie was feeling invincible, like the force was with him. If he could just keep in action, this beautiful run never would really stop. Archie had a history of going on big runs in which he amassed a lot of money all at once and then blew it. And he said, I've been a millionaire 50 different times and been broke just as many. At some point, most gamblers say, wait a minute, I need to stop. I need to thank my lucky stars. They have a part of them deep down that fears losing. But that is why a normal person will never win $17 million. Archie had pride that he wasn't scared. The point that he kept stressing to me was, I don't care about money. I don't fear money. I sleep the same whether I'm in the backseat of my car, dead broke, or whether I have $10 million in a safety deposit box. Money doesn't matter to me. It's the game. If you play a casino game long enough, you will eventually lose and they will eventually win. And that is what happened to Archie. Everything came crashing back to reality. During this period of losing and giving it all back, Archie had a stunning lack of regret. He gave a lot of it back at the dice table. Over a three-month period or so, he just sort of slowly dribbled it all back. We know that the run came to an end because in the years after, Archie could be seen at the World Series of Poker asking for backers to put him into the poker game. I don't have his phone number. I haven't talked to him in years. He's difficult to contact because he will go a year without anybody seeing him. But friends of mine in the poker business have reported seeing him every now and then at a big poker tournament. Well, I initially walked away with the story with a sense of disgust. Man, that's pathetic. But as I've gotten more distance from the story, I realize that somebody like Archie, he can be, in a strange way, an inspiration. 
Before I met Archie, perhaps the largest single wager I ever made on anything was maybe $100. And after meeting Archie, I realized that if I ever wanted to be a winning gambler, I had to get over that constant fear of losing. Subsequently, I did get involved in gambling. I actually ended up being a professional sports better and writing a best-selling book about sports betting. Archie had taught me what's the worst thing that can happen. You lose and you start over again. You got to know when to hold up. Know when to fold up. Know when to walk away. And know when to run. You never count your money. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough for counting. When the dealing's done. Now, if anyone has seen Archie, please let us know. We here at Snap have raised $34.58, and we want to invest. And you know, some accounts say that Archie actually got up to $40 million in winnings. But what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, baby. Michael's got a website at michaelkonick.com. He's got a bunch of books out. We'll have a link on our site, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Stephanie Fu. I stand firm on the right device when I get nice. Don't roll the dice if you can't pay the price. Now today on Snap Judgment, we're rolling the dice, looking for luck. And some folk have got it, and others, not so much. Our next storyteller, Adam Pateman, he was what we call down on his luck, living in New York City and broke. And New York is a bad place. To be broke. It was just very, very bleak, and um, I was being faced with uh, like intense poverty, poverty I'd never <laughs> experienced before uh, in my life. I did really desperate things, like um, I, I learned how to make balloon animals on YouTube, and then I would sell them in Central Park. And then one day, I was invited to go see a movie. But I didn't have any money to go to a movie. I had barely enough to get on the subway. I'm walking to the subway, and as I am approaching it, on the ground, on the sidewalk, I see a baby's shoe. And at first I thought nothing of it, but I ended up picking it up and putting it in my pocket because I remembered this scene in Look Who's Talking. All right. Oh, man, don't tell me you're going to pull the, sir, my kid left her shoe inside, can I go get it, Ken? John Travolta's taking his baby into a movie, and he tries to go see a movie for free by taking the baby's shoe off and putting it in his back pocket and going up to the guy at the box office and saying, sorry, man, I need to go back inside this theater to find my baby's other shoe. My kid left her shoe inside, can we get it? Thanks. Okay. I guess he went for it. What I was going to show them is just a shoe and be like, yeah, I, my baby's in, in the car with my girlfriend. It worked. And I went and I saw Inception for free. I wonder if I can do this again. So for the next week, I just was able to go and see all these movies that I wanted to see for free, just showing this baby shoe. So I'm exiting the subway station on my way home from a week of seeing free movies with this baby shoe. As I emerged, I saw a, like a bunch of rowdy 
kids, like 19-year-old, maybe 20-year-old kids that were, like, smashing beer bottles on the street. In order to avoid them, I decided I'm going to just look nonchalant. And things got really, really quiet, and I could just feel someone kind of come up from behind me. And at that moment, I got hit in the back of the head with a pipe and immediately fell to the ground and they just started like kicking me in the head and the chest. They're just, they're beating me up. And they, the only thing that they took from me while I was down was, was my bag. And then they, they ran off and I'm a bit bloody. In a total daze, I look around and I see my bag. I had like a book. I had uh, resumes. I also had other balloon animal making stuff. And everything that was in it was still there, except for this baby's shoe. As soon as I realized where I was at that exact moment on the sidewalk where I had just been beaten up and where this baby's shoe had been taken, it was the exact location where I had found the baby's shoe exactly a week prior. Baby needs a new pair of shoes, Adam. And it's all your fault. (laughs) There you have it, folks. Lady Luck, she is a fickle lover. She comes to you in life, gets you a bunch of free movies, and leaves you bloody on the sidewalk. But find out more about Adam Pateman on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Mitra Kaboli and Anna Sussman. Now... Our next story comes from Snap Judgment regular Chaz Jackson, who is a very nice person. Maybe one of the nicest people ever to walk through Snap Studios. Well, nice guys can do bad things, but not without paying a horrible price. Chaz Jackson, take it away. I haven't stolen anything since I was a child. I live by the motto, if it's not yours, then don't take it. You want something? Then work hard and get it yourself. With that being said, back when digital cameras first came out, sadly, I did steal one. I was at a party in college and everyone was having a great time. The music was right and the place was littered with eye candy. Nothing could ruin my night. Nothing except for the annoying frat guy with two left feet who insisted on dancing near me the entire night. He was drunk out of his mind and kept bumping my dance partners and I repeatedly. I probably could have ignored the bumping, but he kept fist pumping and shouting the incorrect lyrics to all the songs that came on. But like I said, I was there to have a good time, so one drunk partygoer wasn't going to ruin that. Not until he spilled his rum and coke all over my crisp, white shirt. My bad. The guy says, it'll come out in the wash. I could feel my blood warming. But he wasn't done there. He then pulls out a shiny new Sony digital camera, one I had been eyeing for months, and says, hey bro, can you take a picture of me and my friends? I couldn't believe it. The nerve. I stood there speechless for a second before taking the photo of the guy and his ridiculously drunk frat brother. 
Once the camera flashed, he and his friends went right back to butchering the dance floor with their offbeat two steps. As the brown liquor began to settle into my shirt, I looked down at the digital camera in my hand. I had a decision to make. I could be bumped for the thousandth time on the dance floor and return the camera, or I could make for the door and be a brand new owner of a digital camera. I headed for the door and didn't look back. Once I got home, I did what anybody else would do. I looked through the existing photos. If there were any pictures of him and his grandmother, I might have felt bad. But there weren't. Just drunk photos of the guy and his friends. With one click, I deleted the photos and was on my way. In the days to follow, I utilized that digital camera like no other. I became an Annie Leibovitz with that camera. I took photos at parks, in the city, at the beach, with friends of strangers. I was in seventh heaven for all of two weeks. One day after photo explorations in the park, I returned to my car to find a bright white envelope gleaming on the windshield. I thought it might be a note or a flyer, but I was floored when I discovered that it was in fact a parking ticket. My meter wasn't expired, so I was confused. The parking ticket stated that I was parked five inches in the red. The next week I got a speeding ticket. The officer politely informed me that I was in a school zone. Leaving lunch one day, I looked both ways and crossed a busy intersection. A police officer asked why I had crossed without using the crosswalk, jaywalking. It was unreal. While eating a cookie, I bit into a walnut and my filling fell out. The replacement cost me half a month's rent. I leaned up against a wall while waiting in the hallway for class to start one day, only to have another student point out the sign that had fallen on the floor, which read, Wet Paint. I was baffled by the newfound string of bad luck I had run into. I couldn't understand it. I told my best friend about all the occurrences, and she asked me if I had wronged anyone lately. I couldn't think of anybody off the top of my head. My eyes wandered the room right over to the digital camera sitting on my dining room table. I know exactly what's changed, I said. Well, whoever you've wronged, make it right. There was no way I'd ever be able to find the camera's owner ever again. But this was karma. I had to do something to cleanse mine. And it had to be something drastic, too. The first thing I did was erase all the photos in that camera and donate it to the Goodwill. Then I finally settled on volunteering weekly at a convalescent home. The stories the elderly people would tell me were priceless, and I enjoyed their company. One gentleman in particular named Maxwell recalled how as a young person he despised being around elderly. And look at me now, surrounded by him. You be careful what you put into the atmosphere. Things have a way of coming back to get you. His words couldn't be truer. Thank you very much, Chaz. Chaz Jackson. I'm Mark, would you please hide the camera? That story was produced by Renzo Gorio and Jamie DeWolf. listening to Snap Judgment, the Lady Luck episode. Now, I'm going to go rub the Uber producer's head for luck. It works, Snappers. Try it for yourself sometime. We'll be back in just a moment. This is Snap Judgment. Yeah, baby, that's what I like. Yeah, baby, that's what I like. Just do that dance. Yeah, darling, that's what I like. For the moment, that's what I like.
Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington. And you know, on this show, as in real life, bad things happen to good people. But always understand this, Snappers. Lady Luck wears many guises. Our own Lindsay Lee Keel, she spoke to Ramona Pearson about her story. In 1984, Ramona Pearson was living in California. She ran marathons and was in the Marine Corps. I came home from work. I had a marathon on the next day, so I thought I would just go out for a jog just to keep my muscles warm. As I ran across the street, a man ran a red light and hit me. It was like a grenade went off in my head. I just felt my life's blood coming out of me. Ramona was dying, but another driver had seen the hit and run, and fortunately, he knew what to do. I was one of the lucky ones because whoever stopped had saved my life. He was able to keep my my lungs from collapsing by putting a pin through through my throat, and I ended up being transported to the hospital. I have no recollection of anything that happened until I woke up 18 months later. When Ramona came out of her coma, she was blind, and she no longer knew how to speak. It's the strangest feeling, as if I was put into a, um, a casket of sorts, and had no way to articulate to people what I was feeling. At the hospital, Ramona underwent multiple surgeries, but they could only help her so much. She still couldn't speak or write and didn't know how to function as a blind person. She just seemed too broken to ever really recover. So instead of putting Ramona in rehabilitation, social services decided on a strange place to send a 23-year-old. They just were like, let's just throw a, a dart at, the, at a map, and I landed in a senior citizen's home. When the senior citizens saw their newest member for the first time, it wasn't just her age that made her seem different. She weighed 68 pounds, was bald, and covered in scars. Ramona wore hospital scrubs and carried only a suitcase filled with medical records. And she couldn't see or speak to them. I'm sure they thought, oh, E.T. just arrived to the doorstep. And, and I know that at the point, I could just feel that pause that happens in a room when somebody walks in and they're a little bit shocked when when you come in. Um, they brought me into an apartment and it was completely empty and when they looked around, I guess, at me, asked me if I had any um, furniture to move in there or any clothes. And of course, the social worker that was with me just answered that I had nothing. So some of the seniors banded together and came up with a plan. They took me out to lunch, and when I came back, the place was filled with furniture and people had donated clothes. Of course, you know, the clothes were polyester. The seniors just seemed to want to help her. They, unlike the hospital, thought she might be able to get better. Every group had something they wanted to help her with. The senior men wanted her to talk. They decided that I needed to learn some some real words, 
that would be good for everyday life. They would bring in their own version of cuss word scrapple. One of the men would tell her what letters she had in front of her, and she would memorize them. And seeing them in her mind, she would spell out something crude. Of course, my first words were those that I can't repeat. We would play these games, and they were so much fun that I think that that is what actually broke some of my inhibitions that I had acquired. It's really hard for an adult to to learn to speak because you have your ego that gets in the way. So there was the physical damage that I had to overcome. But at that point, I also had the uncomfortable feeling of hearing a new voice come out of my mouth. Next, a woman who had once been a school teacher wanted her to learn how to write. She happened to have Alzheimer's. She could never remember what she taught me before. So I learned to write again because of the uh, redundancy. I didn't really understand what was wrong with her until she kept asking me every day what a hamburger was. So it finally sunk in that there was something cognitively different about her. Often she would get lost and people would go out and find her. So I didn't feel so bad about myself being lost all the time. Ramona could be exactly who she was with the seniors, fumbles and all. The senior center turned out to be the best place Ramona could have ended up. And that was a lucky break. They took me under their wings, literally, uh, took me under their wings. And I spent every moment of my waking time for probably close to a year with the senior citizens. Ramona had come so far in her time with the seniors, and they wanted to give her even more. So they raised enough money to send Ramona to a school where she could learn how to function as a blind person. And she did well for herself. Learning how to learn again set her on a new path. She wanted to study the healing process, so she went back to school and eventually became a neuroscientist. And after all that, she's still grateful for her time at the senior center. It was probably the most remarkable experience of my life. When you would think that it would be so tragic for me, it was actually filled with laughter and humor, and I believe that everybody felt a purpose. And I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for them. Thank you, Ramona, for sharing your story. Now, about 10 years after her accident, Ramona was able to regain sight in one eye with surgery. Ramona Pearson is a two-time TED Talk speaker, and she's just launched a new company specializing in artificial intelligence. We'll have a link on our site, snapjudgment.org. See, you never know what can happen. That piece was produced by Lindsay Lee Keel and Renzo Gorio. Now, we all make our own luck, and we unmake it as well. Just ask our next storyteller, Jonathan Berger. He's got a tale from when he was just 11 years old. Well, when I was a kid, I would always go to the store and my mom would buy me a pack of baseball cards. When you get a King Griffey Jr. or a Frank Thomas, those were the ones that really cost a lot. It was like, you know, you had instant money. 
The convention was the first real baseball card convention that was coming to town. Oh, it's, it's kind of like coming up on an ice cream store and free ice cream. I mean, it was great. You get to see cards like a 1952 Mickey Mantle or a King Griffey Jr. rookie card, which you really badly wanted. I mean, it was just a fantastic experience. Once I kind of looked around, I saw a box, just a cardboard box that had a little place where you put your hand in. In the box, there were probably 2,000 cards, and you could pay $5, get three grabs, and when you put your hand in, you pulled out a baseball card sleeve, and it would have either a piece of paper in it that said you didn't win, it would have a baseball card in it, or it would have a grand prize, and the number one grand prize was a 1954 Ted Williams baseball card, Tops. Ted Williams was a great baseball player, and at the time his cards were very collectible. It was worth about $600, which is like a million dollars in kid inflation. Oh, I had my allowance, $20. The first pull, I got practically nothing. I may have gotten a Bobby Bonilla, which everybody had a Bobby Bonilla. And the second time, I really didn't get anything. I think I did it three times, and I was getting nothing. Strike three! You're out! At this point, I'm out of money because I had spent my last $5 on trying to pull out something that was really valuable. So I went to my mom, and I begged my mom. And of course, like a good responsible adult, she said, Oh, you're not going to win anything. And I said, No, I'll win. I promise I'll win. So she reluctantly handed over $5, and I ran as fast as I could back to that grab box. And I've just got this overwhelming feeling that this was my lucky draw, and I was going to win. So I handed over the $5, and the first card I pull out is not a card at all. It's got the paper that says, you are not a winner. Two, right one. The second card I pulled out was, again, nothing. Two, right two. And the third and last card I pulled out had a little piece of paper folded up on it. The guy who ran this box, he just looked devastated. It was the 1954 Ted Williams Topps baseball card. Oh, I won this card. I can't believe it. I won. Yelling and screaming, probably looking like an insane kid. The first thing he told me was that it was his dad's baseball card and that he did not expect anybody to win it. He offered me, I think, $200 on the spot to give him the card back. Being a little kid that just won something, I said no. And then he offered me, I think, 40 grabs into the box. There were a lot of valuable cards in there. And I said, nope, I want the Ted Williams card. And as he went to hand it over to me, we almost had one of those, like a TV sitcom or movie moment where I'm grabbing it, he doesn't want to let go of it, and we're having a slight little tug of war. Then I just ripped it out of his hands and just went running, ran to my mom and thanked her and hugged her, and she, of course, just could not believe that I won. The next day, I took the card to school because I wanted to show it off. I first tell my friends, and they're like, nah, you didn't win it. There's no way you won that. And I pulled it out, and so I would let them hold it for a few seconds and take it back. And so I was the most popular kid uh, in my grade at this point. 
as soon as I get home, I have chores to do. My mom says, you need to do your laundry right now. So I just go to the washing machine, dump the detergent in, wash machine starts going. About maybe 30 minutes later, I start to think, huh, I want to go check out my Ted Williams card and admire it. And I could not find my Ted Williams card because my Ted Williams card was in my pants pocket, which was currently in the washing machine. So I frantically run to the washing machine, open it up, grab my pants, pull out the card, and the card is soaking wet, has creases in it already, and if you get a crease in the baseball card, the price just plummets down immediately. So I thought, oh, I can take it out, dry it out with a blow dryer. Did not work. Made the creases even worse, put some splotches on it. So now I'd had the luckiest day of my life to the most unluckiest day of my life in a matter of about 24 hours. You're out of there! I'm a baseball card lover. I'm a baseball card lover. I'm a baseball card lover. Honey, show me your cards. Many thanks, Jonathan. I just hope you don't run your winning lottery ticket through the wash as well. That piece was produced by Stephanie to the food. You've been listening to the Lady Luck episode of Snap Judgment, and you are in luck. Full episodes, movies, pictures, the Snap Judgment universe awaits your pleasure at snapjudgment.org. Get in the conversation with Snap Nation, Facebook, Snap Judgment, Twitter, snapjudgment.org. Snap Judgment was produced by myself and the baddest backroom team a pit boss could hope for. Please roll the dice for Mark the Uber Producer Ristich. Pat, let it ride with C.D. Miller. Stephanie, double down foo. Anna, snake eyes Sussman. Jamie, the kneecapper, the wolf. And Lindsay Lee Keel, she might distract you while Renzo Gorio gambles with Will Urbina's money. But no worries, Julia DeWitt has it all on tape. If you see someone wearing a shower curtain trying to hitchhike out of town, don't call the authorities. That's just a corporation for public broadcasting. Pull over and give them a ride to the next town. Tell them many thanks from the snap. PRX is like, what happened to some lucky soul a long time ago when he mixed gin and tonic And, well, that is if the public is tonic and the media is gin. Anyway, together they both taste delicious. Over there at PRX, the public radio exchange, prx.org. Now, you know this is not the news. This is not the news. In fact, you could dig under the cushions of that old couch and find a solid gold watch. Lucky day, you could take this watch to an appraiser only to have them confirm your deepest hopes and desires that it is, in fact, a Civil War-era antique, one of five specialty watches produced by Wessel B. Moreford, watchmaker extraordinaire. And you could celebrate Lady Luck smiling on you until the officer slaps the cuffs on and says he wants to hear where you got his grandfather's watch. Yeah, (laughs) you could do all that and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.